most of you, most of you know my history. I spent 15 years playing in, in heavy metal bands, trying to be a rock star. And man, it's hard for me to preach the revelation because you come across these scenes that are so metal, and it's just so tempting. Uh, I mean, I was seriously. I just uh, my first attempt at a title for this sermon was "Angels from the Bottomless Pit," and it just doesn't get any more metal than that. You, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Which, you know, you always, then you start thinking, maybe we could slip in a metal song for the Song of Illumination and, and get, do metal church like we've always dreamed of doing. But praise God, the Spirit overtook me and I came to my senses and I was able to title this what it's really, really talking about, which is a great, a great spiritual famine. So if you would please stand out of respect for the reading of God's Word, out of respect for the speaker who is God, I am just the reader. Let's now listen intently as God speaks to us through his inerrant word. Uh, this is Revelation chapter 8, verses 13, the end of chapter 8 through uh, chapter 9, verse 12. And then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets, and the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened and the smoke by the smoke from the shaft. And then from the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, their teeth like lion's teeth. They had the breastplates like breastplates of iron. The noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings, they have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. And they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And on that joyous note, <laughs> mm. uh, true story, in 1979, uh, I was in junior high, uh, one of my good friends, a guy named Brian Perrin, one day loaded up his 22 rifle and came to school at Oak Crest Junior High School uh, and intended to kill as many people as he could possibly find. Uh, thankfully, the, the teacher of the classroom that he first went to thought quickly, and they were able to barricade the classroom, and he was disarmed. And 
taken off to, uh, he was uh, sentenced into a mental facility for a long time. And so thank goodness he wasn't, he didn't end up actually killing anyone, but just that the act of it was just shocking to us. How could someone we know, how could someone we know, I knew him from Boy Scouts. We were in Boy Scouts together. How could someone we knew so well, who seemed like such a normal kid, just all of a sudden one day snap and do something so incredibly horrific? Uh, why would someone do that? And this week, uh, we suffered through, once again, another school shooting in Saugus, California. Saugus is uh, where Magic Mountain is, if you're not sure, which is really close to us. I spent an, uh, an awful summer there, living in a trailer, uh, trying to survive for three or four months. Uh, and so I know Saugus well. We woke up another school shooting, and more and more and more we're faced with tragedies like this in life and, and, and what the world is like. And, and it's just, sometimes it, 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 you can't, we're getting more and more able to ignore these things, but you can't just be confronted with yet another school shooting and, and other tragedies in the world and just, and without asking yourself, what is going on? What is wrong with the world? You know, these things happen so often now. We're becoming immune to them and immune to their effects. They certainly don't affect us the way Columbine did, however long ago that was and how shocking that first instance was. But, but it, does, it, does, it does shock us in a different way, and that is in the dismay over how commonplace and frequent it's becoming. And as Christians... We can add to that list of dismay and tragedy. We can add to that the scourge of abortion that plagues our nation. Uh, we can add to that the opioid epidemic that is charging through our culture. We can add to that the skyrocketing uh, numbers of mental illness that, that we are, as a culture, suffering from. Uh, we can add to that deep, deep confusion over sexuality and marriage and gender that is causing so much suffering and so much pain to so many of God's wonderful creations. We can look at the way media and entertainment in general as a whole are slowly just treating us and showing us, teaching us how to treat each other like trash unless you happen to have a different political view and then you're taught to treat each other as mortal enemies. Uh, man, it just seems like things are getting bad, you know? Just 50, 60 years ago, and I'm old enough to remember this, just 50, 60 years ago, uh, we were still caught up in the perspective, uh, the basic cultural understanding was that the world was getting better in every way, every day that we would, through science and technology and our understanding, we would be able to master the forces of nature and become masters over nature, and therefore we were going to create this utopian society. We were going to create a paradise uh, on Earth. People really, really, really believed that. But somewhere along the way, people started to lose faith in that idea. There's a, maybe you've heard people talk about postmodernism. Uh, and that's 
in a big way, what that means is people have lost faith in that reality. Uh, nobody really believes anymore that we're going to create a utopia. Um, and that seems now like the world is getting more violent, more callous. Uh, it's getting more confused. It's getting more out of control. And everybody's got their answers to why that is. There's too many guns. Too easy to get guns. It's the breakdown of the family and the poverty that comes with it. Uh, it is uh, the basic the fact that we as a culture have traded in virtue for consumerism as the highest public good and the destruction that that's caused in its wake. It's because of greed and oppression of the poor. It's because of systemic racism and economic injustice. And everyone, everyone has their human answers. Everyone has their human solutions. And the Bible acknowledges all those things as sin. Uh, but it goes deeper behind that whole complex matrix of, of sin in the world there's a deeper reality, and the deeper reality, the bigger problem that the Bible is presenting and that this passage in particular presents is there is a great spiritual famine behind all of it, which is uh, the loss of our connection with God and the truth of God and the wisdom uh, that that brings with it. And thus, and thus we suffer with what we suffer with now. You know, this passage is, is this passage, we talk about Revelation being interpreted in terms of science fiction. Last week I talked about disaster movies. This passage might be science fiction central. This is sci-fi central for the book of Revelation because of these creatures. They're just so, they're so bizarre. And every, 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 every generation has had an interpretation for these creatures out of the pages of their own newspapers of the day. If you were reading, uh, if you were reading uh, the, the North African newspapers of 400 AD, these would have been uh, the Visigoth raiders that were coming in and overtaking uh, the churches and the cities of Northern Africa. If you, were, uh, if you were reading the Rome Sentinel in 600 AD, these would be the, uh, the, the Vandal raiders who had long hair and wore breastplates of iron and were fierce and rode horses and were terrifying. If you were in Europe in 1200 AD, this was the plague. And if you were in America in 1970s, these were Apache war helicopters and Abrams A-1 tanks and the threat of looming nuclear war. Every generation has had a physical representation of what these creatures are and what's happening in this passage based on their immersion in the current uh, events and tragedies of the day. And every generation was right, and every generation was wrong. They saw the symptoms, but not necessarily the cause. Uh, all of these terrible events, all of this is a picture that we see in this passage is something greater, something deeper, something beneath it all, and that is this, which is the big idea of the passage. That angels of the bottomless pit have brought a spiritual famine that only Christ can satisfy. That's the big idea. 
the angels of the bottomless pit have brought a spiritual famine that only Christ can satisfy. So let's look at that one piece at a time. First, the angels of the bottomless pit. I have a friend, a good friend, he's not a Christian. Um, We skate together. He uh, was doing a project for college where uh, it was a class on religion. He was at SDSU taking a class on religion. So he knows I'm a Christian pastor, so he's always like asking, you know, I was like, this is like silver platter stuff, right? Because he's always asking me stuff about like, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Uh, And so anyways, for his final project, they were assigned a couple of choices. And one of his choices was to make a video of the council of hell electing a new leader after the, the, the demise of Lucifer. I get it. Now, let's not get into the theological precision of that statement, right? But that was the big idea. Lucifer was no longer able to lead hell, and they had to elect a new leader of hell. And because he knows I'm a Christian pastor and he thought it would be funny to ask me, he asked me if I would do the video with him. And then I said yes, and he was totally shocked. He was like, uh, uh, uh. So I did it, and my, my, my character in the video was was a medieval pope called Pope Innocent, who was like the most wicked pope of all time. Uh, and anyway, so they, they gave us, we had a category of four people uh, that we had to judge between. And they were all the usual suspects, people who were just, just on the face, just evil, had caused, uh, like in, intentionally caused famine, warfare, had intentionally like caused disease and, and, and plague and outbreak. Uh, people who were just systematically evil and destructive on, on, on the face of it. They were obviously evil, 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 right? And as we're doing the video, or we're preparing to do the video, and we were writing out the script for the, and choosing between these four people, I said, hey, why don't you... I said, that's not really what, that, what evil's all about. I mean, that's, I mean, that's evil, but there's a deeper level of evil, a deeper level of evil that isn't uh, just bringing war, but that is confusing people spiritually and introducing spiritual falsehood and spiritual lies and, 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 and confusing and distorting the truth and wisdom that God has given us for other kinds of truth and wisdom. And so I said, why don't you put like Oprah Winfrey on that list or maybe John Lennon? And he was like, what are you talking about, bro? It was just beyond his ability to comprehend how someone like Oprah Winfrey or John Leonard, who seem culturally to be so good, could possibly be in the category of evil. And I was trying to present to him a real spiritual truth, and that is this, that true evil doesn't show up in in the red suit with the horns and the pitchfork It doesn't show up looking like ugly destruction because nobody's going to say, hey, ugly destruction, I'll take some of that. It doesn't show up like that. The Bible says what? The Bible says that Satan's messengers come to us and appear as angels of light. And as we look out on the world and the things that the world sees and, 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 lifts up as beautiful and good and true, many of those things, not all of them, there's common grace. People, even people without the Spirit are able to see good and true and beautiful things, but as far as the spiritual realm goes, what's presented is presented as beauty, it's presented as light, but it is destruction. 
it is terrifying destruction. And what this passage does in the first part here is God pulls off the mask and reveals to us what evil is really like. These are not angels of light. These are angels of the bottomless pit. And this is what they look like. So let's, let's look at it real quick and pull that out. So first thing I want you to see is that we are talking about in this passage, an expansion on the second trumpet, right? Remember the second trumpet was John saw some, a star burning like a torch thrown down from heaven. And last week we talked about, uh, I tried to, to, to convince you that that was not a giant comet that was hitting the earth in a catastrophic event, but that that was the devil. And now look here, we're expanding on that event and look what it says. It talks about that star, except now it gives him a personal pronoun, he, in verse 9-1. It's a person. It's not a giant comet. And then he's named at the end. His name is Abaddon or Apollyon, which both mean the same thing. In Hebrew and Greek, it means destroyer. And this destroyer is the king over all of these locusts or angels of the bottomless pit. We see he has the pit, he opens the pit. What happens? Smoke rises up into the air. And what does the smoke do? It blots out some of the light of the sun. The fourth trumpet. Again, symbolic of of this angel of the bottomless pit, the king of the angels of the bottomless pit, Abaddon, Apollyon, with this smoke bringing spiritual confusion and dismay upon the earth. And then finally, we have the locusts. And John is really, he is really struggling to describe what these things are. And you can tell by his language. He says, it's like this. It's kind of like that. It's something like this. Because these are things that he has never seen before. This is where so many commentators take license right here to say, you see, John is trying to describe something in the future that he has no recollection or no recollection of or, or any kind of conscious memory of. It must be some war machine of the future. It must be some plague of the future. It must be something, but maybe more likely is that just like in dreams, sometimes we dream of things that don't have any reference in the physical world, or we dream of nightmares, creatures that don't really exist in the natural world, and we certainly have imaginations to think about those things. More likely is that this vision is describing something that doesn't Uh, not something that exists as a creature in the natural world, but it is a a vision of terrifying proportions of what demons are really like. What are they really like? They're like locusts. What do locusts do? They consume everything in their path. They consume all nutrients and all goodness and all greenery and all life. They're like men's faces with crowns. That's a demonic reference. They are like horses. They're fast. They're powerful. They're fast moving. They have lion's teeth, which are the ultimate teeth of destruction out of every creature. A lion's teeth are most feared. They have iron armor, which in the ancient world would have been been like a picture of uh, unstoppable defense. They would have been impenetrable, unstoppable, they have, chariot, they have wings that sound like chariots. Chariots were the heavy, mobile armor of the ancient Near East. They were fast-moving, heavy armor. It was just overwhelming, terrifying. And so God gives us this picture. It's a wake-up call. 
Uh, it's a call to reality. It's pulling the mask off the way that evil tries to present itself as beautiful to the world, as light, as goodness, as truth and beauty. And instead it says, no, evil and the demonic agents behind it, they are fast moving. They are aggressive. They are destroyers of life. They are in, uh, unquenchable in their desire to destroy and feed on life. They have no pity or mercy for you whatsoever. They are heavily armored, fast-moving agents of destruction, and they are coming after you. And if you think about evil like that, you're going to be much less tempted to play with it. Amen? You know, I think something's kind of relatively harmless. I think something's basically neutral. Then I might play with it, you know, and mess around with it a little bit. But if I think that that thing is a, it has inherent traps and snares and has the ability to quickly overwhelm and surround me by its fast-moving capabilities and is able to then ensnare me and trap me in it, I'm going to be much less likely to play with that thing. In fact, I'm going to get as far away from it as I can. And so God, in his mercy to us, is pulling the mask off. He's saying, be sober-minded about what evil, what it really is, what the devil's really like, and what demons are doing on the face of the earth. They are bringing terror with them. Stay away from it. And if that's what evil is, then we can ask ourselves, what does evil do? What are these locusts doing? That's the second part. The locusts, they have brought a spiritual famine. They have brought a spiritual famine. Uh, when I, uh, I, go to, I get to go to China once a year, uh, I went to Beijing twice, and whenever I go to Beijing, I make it a point to go see uh, the shrine of Chairman Mao. There's a, in the middle of Tiananmen Square, which is maybe one of the most heavily guarded places on the face of the earth. Uh, you can go through the tunnels and go into Tiananmen Square, and in the right dead center of it, there's a giant, you know, modern building. Uh, it's the shrine of Mao. The only thing in it is in the center of Mao's body, preserved in a plexiglass, you know, nitrogen. I don't know how they do it. I guess Lenin is the same way in Russia, right? But Mao is... Chairman Mao is sitting there laying on the table, taking a nap, and you can, wa you can walk through and you can see Chairman Mao. And it is, for the Chinese, it's for a lot of Chinese people, it is a religious experience. I mean, the last place in the world, especially certainly the last place in China you want to be like making a joke about anything is in that line on your way to see Chairman Mao. Well, you, you're going to be, you're going to be uh, pulled out and go to have tea with the officials, as they say. They sell flowers at the entrance. <laughs> you can buy a thing of flowers for $10 or whatever it is, and then you leave them on the mausoleum, and then the workers collect the flowers and bring them back out front and sell them again. <laughs> Chairman Mao is this great hero of the Republic, and everybody remembers the great things about him. One thing they don't tell you as you walk through that line, one thing they don't tell you or don't you mention at all in China is the Great Famine of China, which wasn't that long ago, 58 to 62, 1958 to 1962. 
Most of us don't have any, any mental reference on famine whatsoever. I mean, if you go to the grocery store and like your favorite brand of something isn't there, you get perplexed, right? You're upset. That's our reality. That's famine to us. They're out of, uh, you know, they're out of Thomas's English muffins and I have to buy the Safeway brand and I'm crushed. That's, that's, our, that's our Western, you know, concept of famine. But in, in the Chinese famine, which is probably the greatest, the greatest famine we know about, 30 million people starved to death. The Chinese government, wanting to be seen as a, as a contending power in the world, they, they reorganized all of their agriculture so that what happened was most of the grain, most of the crops ended up being taken away from the farmers in the, in the rural areas and centralized in the cities and then all offered as export so that China could look like they had an overabundance. And, and either some people think the officials just didn't know or the numbers were wrong, or they just didn't have good intelligence or or communication. They just didn't know that 30 million farmers starved to death on their own farms after the government trucks had hauled away all their grain and all their produce, and in in many cases taking their livestock and their cash with them. Uh, And famine is a horrible way to die. After you run out of fat calories, the body begins to feed on itself with muscles, organs. Your organs begin to shut down. Your organs begin to wither. Your body withers, and it begins to affect your mind. You hallucinate. You become irritable and angry. Uh, You see things that aren't there. Uh, You can't think straight. And then eventually your body shuts down, and you have a heart attack, and you die. You, You die of a broken heart, legitimately. It's a terrible, terrible, terrible way to die. Now, again, remember, this is sci-fi central, and everyone sees this in terms of warfare. And it is, but it's much worse. This isn't A1 tanks and Apache helicopters. This is spirit war and what spirit war is actually doing to, peop- to what the Bible calls the earth dwellers, the people who are in rebellion and rejection against God. And God gives the key to the angel. He allows this to happen. He orchestrates it. And, and as we look at this, this is, what, this is what the devil does to his own people, right? So if you're one of those people who think, ah, better to rule in hell than serve in heaven, I hope this wipes that idea right off the top of your brain because this is how the devil treats his very own followers, his own people who are committed to him whether they know it or not. This is a picture of spiritual famine causing a deep-seated spiritual starvation. How do I know that? Look, it's locusts, right? What do locusts do? Locusts eat everything in their path. They eat all vegetation. They destroy all nourishment in their path, right? But what do these locusts do? What are they prevented from doing? These are locusts who are told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. This is mission-specific. It's important to remember that. It's just talking about in vision, symbolic vision terms, 
uh, people who are rejecting God. And that's the world around us, but it's also false churches, false believers in false churches who have abandoned the wisdom and truth of God for the wisdom of the world uh, and, the, and, and for grabbing on to, to, to spiritual falsehood. Uh, and what do they do to these, those without the seal? It says they torment them. For five months, five months is probably either symbolic of the dry season in Israel. It might be the life cycle of a locust. We're not sure. Mostly it means... This is temporary judgment, not ultimate white throne judgment. This is not eternal judgment. This is judgment happening now on the earth in the church age. And it torments them. Like the sting of a scorpion. Have you ever been stung by a scorpion? Nate? <laughs> I've never been stung by a scorpion. I'm stung by a bee. I imagine it's got to be worse than being stung by a bee, right? It's got to be pretty bad. But listen, this is not talking about physical pain. This is torment. It's primarily spiritual and psychological suffering. And we know that because these words are used in the same context throughout the rest of the book, especially in chapter 18 and chapter 20. Uh, these words are synonymous with mourning and with weeping. It's talking not about giant creatures who will sting you and you'll have a big sore for five months. It is talking about spiritual, emotional, psychological suffering that these, this kind of wickedness brings. Man, and I don't know about you, but I think I'd, I would rather be stung by a scorpion than having to go through some of the emotional pain and suffering that I've gone through in life. I'll take a scorpion sting any day. So this is not better by any means. It's much worse. It says it's so bad, in fact, that people will wish for death. It gets so bad, people, it says people will seek death in those times but will not find it. Wow, that's a scary sentence, isn't it? I mean, we hear that and we think, oh, that means that you can't even kill yourself because you just pop back into life and then you're miserable, which would be awful. I don't think that's what it's talking about. I mean, it's modeled on the Old Testament. We see a lot of similar language like this, particularly in the book of Job. Job wishes that he was dead often. I wish that I had never been born. I wish that I had never come from my mother's womb. Uh, and so I think this isn't talking about some weird, altered reality where you cannot kill yourself and die. It is talking about a reality where, a dual reality, where, where life has become just so unsatisfactory, where nothing in life satisfied and the meaning of life becomes less and less worthwhile, the value of life becomes less and less, it gets to the point where you just wish you were dead. Now, I get that. I mean, I have diagnosed with, with depression. I have real live chemical imbalances in my brain that give me that feeling, but also the world around can really exacerbate that 
and make it worse. And this is really what's so scary about this, guys, is talking about those who do not have the seal. It's talking about the general condition in life where, on the one hand, you're so dissatisfied with life, you just wish you could die. And on the inside, even though you completely reject everything about God on the surface, underneath it all, there's a subconscious knowledge that very well could be something worse for you if you did commit suicide and so you don't do it and you're caught between the rock and the hard place. Dissatisfaction in life, fear of death. That's really the under, that's the tension in that, that very scary, scary, scary statement. It's a cognitive dissidence that people are experiencing that, are, that they are in. And how does it, how, how does forces of evil, how do they do this? How do they accomplish it? They accomplish it like locusts with spiritual famine, eating up the truth of God and the knowledge of God and the reality of God so that in the absence, in the vacuum of that, people start feeding on other things do not satisfy. Here's the control verse from Amos. We read it for the reading of the law. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. You know where this is most true? This kind of spiritual famine, longing is in the most prosperous parts of the world. So it's not about money. It's not about access to food. It's about the just general despair that comes from the knowledge of God being diminished, erased, distorted in the world, and people instead turning to other things to feed on which then brings even worse trouble. I have a friend who um, went on a surf trip to Nicaragua, and he told me that in Nicaragua, the kids in Nicaragua are so poor, they huff paint because paint huffing kills their hunger pangs from the famine. In other parts of the world, people swallow rocks to get something in their stomach. Or they'll make cakes of, of a little bit of wheat and some mud and some sawdust, and they'll eat that. Because it temporarily, it temporarily stops the hunger pains. And so they do it, but then it causes worse problems. It becomes worse. And then, but then they would go back to it and repeat it because it's all they have, and they're caught in this cycle of starving, being hungry, huffing paint, uh, having all the complications with that, being hungry again, doing it again, and over and over and over, repeat. And that is what sin is like. We're not physically starving, we're spiritually starving. And instead of going to true food, instead we go to false food. We go to things that immediately make us feel better, but come with it all sorts of complications. It causes even more hunger. And then we return to it again, which causes more hunger. Return to it again, causes more hunger. Return to it again. 
That's what sin is like. In the midst of a spiritual famine, when we are spiritually starving to death, and we're withering, that's how sin acts, and that's why we go back to it over and over. It's because you're trying to solve a problem, spiritual starvation. But it's never going to work. It can never work. It can only get worse. The only solution to a spiritual famine is spiritual food, which is the last part. The only solution to a spiritual famine or the spiritual famine that we are in, only Jesus can satisfy that. Only Jesus can satisfy that. I talked in the very beginning uh, before the call to worship about self-talk and how we can get wrapped up in like all the negative, negative things we tell ourselves or just the way we talk to ourselves. Um, there's an old saying that sinned people, people, who are, people, people, people who sin have been sinned against. Uh, and so if someone talks to you poorly or, or maybe as you were you know, raised, your parents talk poorly to you, then you grow up with that embedded image and you do the same to the people around you who love you. I know for, for a fact my daughters are going to get most of their sense of self-worth and value by how I treat them and how I talk to them and how I encourage them and tell them that they are beautiful, that they are valued. And if, we're, if you're a kid and you miss out on that or you have, you know, or like many of us who are in uh, homes where that didn't happen, uh, it, causes, it causes damage that then takes a long time to undo. There was like this crazy experiment, I don't know if you guys ever saw this, where they took water, put it in jars, and they put signs on the one water, hate, malice, envy, fear, and they put signs on this other water bottle, love, joy, happiness, value. And then, uh, and I know this is true or not, but it's a great illustration. They would, t- they would have those thoughts towards those bottles of water. The one bottle of water with the signs of hatred and anger and envy and fear on it grew like putrid and grew mold and mildew and sludge in it while the other jar remained like pure and clean water. I, I have not looked at the background of all that. I haven't like dug out the science of it, okay? So don't call the presbytery and say Rob is preaching some crazy stuff about bottles of water, but it's, it's an illustration. You get what I'm saying? Same thing happens to people. Talk smack to them. My wise pastor told me once, people will live up how you think of them. People will live up to the image you have of them. And so if you're always telling people that they suck or they're this or they're that, that's the image they're going to live up to you as. You tell them that you love them, that you value them, that they are worthy, that they are secure, that they are safe. They live into that reality and become more like that. And what does that have to do with all this? Why am I even bringing this up? Remember, this is mission-specific All that stuff they just said, it talked about, it was talking God, talking about those who did not have his seal on them, right? And remember, we talked about the prophetic idiom of Revelation, meaning that it's not, it doesn't talk in earthly terms. In in Revelation, the evil are all evil, all bad, all the time. They're always shaking their fist at God. They are just the epitome of wickedness and evil, and the righteous are always perfect and holy and just. And now, you know, that ain't real life, but that's the prophetic idiom in the book. 
The wicked are all bad all the time. And, 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 but the righteous are portrayed as being at peace, as trusting God, as praising God, as believing, as, uh, 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 as being, uh, knowing that they are the objects of his value and love and have been saved and are safe and secure. And so in this, as the, oh, the, the earth dwellers, those who have, do not have the seal, are portrayed as being, uh, just, uh, being resentful against God, as being immersed in spiritual famine, how being, uh, and that playing out in despair and hopelessness. The saints, conversely, by implication, and also elsewhere are shown as being at peace, of knowing and trusting in God's perfect plan, of having faith in God and knowing that these things that we experience on this earth are bumps in the road, of understanding our deep val- the deep value that God has placed on us and that he has literally come and died for us to purchase our salvation and that we are so safe and so secure in him and that will never change. And through all of this trouble, the saints are glorifying God. Now listen, in reality, that ain't me. <laughs> Amen? In reality, I am mistrusting God. In reality, I am running for the junk food. In reality, I am neglecting the spiritual food, the wealth, the abundance, the feast that God has on the table. Running for the junk food. That's my self-image. That's my self-talk. But what this is, this is how God as our Father speaks to us, speaks to you. He's telling you what's really true of you. He's telling you who we really are, who we are in Christ, is we are at peace. We are trusting God. We do see and trust him in, in the overall plan of life, and we trust him through these bumps in the road. We understand and know that we will overcome. God is saying, this is what's true of you. See that? God is speaking to us. He's saying, all that mess, it's not really you. It's sin working out, it's sin working in you, but it's not ultimately who is true of you. What is true of you ultimately in the greatest spiritual sense is that you are at peace, you are worshiping God you are entrusting in him for all things. You're praising and worshiping his holy name. And we are able, we are that because we are in Christ. <laughs> because what a Christ has done. Because God sees us through Jesus and he is applying all that truth to us and saying to us, that's who you really are. That's who you are. It's God speaking to us. And because that's true, he's saying the encouragement in all that is because what Christ has done for us to buy us that position and what that is, all that is really true, everything is about that is true of us. He's saying no one's going to be perfect in this world, right? But he's saying live into that. Lean into that. Lean into the spiritual food that Christ gives us in his word and the Lord's Supper coming to church every Sunday and hearing his word, having this meal in the wilderness and not neglecting it. 
And throughout the week, when you're tempted to run for the, dr- for the, for the drug, junk food, to remember Christ, remember that tendency, remember the spiritual riches that we have, to receive his grace and all of these things that he gives us, and then to live into it as best we can day by day. Amen? Amen.